Zechariah 13, verse 7. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. At the very end of the Old Testament, you find the book of Zechariah, and then very shortly afterward, we start the New Testament, Matthews. Um, if you remember, two weeks ago, we started, um, we talked about that, Zechariah 13.1. And we say that um, Zechariah, even though it's such a short book, only 14 chapters, yet I think it is the second prophet in the Old Testament in terms of the messianic, uh, the volume of the messianic scripture and the volume of the messianic prophecies that he uh, talks about. It's very, very amazing and heavy book. Today we're going to just read that verse, Zechariah 13, 7. And here is what the word of the Lord says. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Amen? Can we read that verse, all of us, out loud together? It is so good. Let's read it together out loud. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. I went to uh, George Mason not too long ago, a few months ago, <clears throat> just trying to talk to people about Jesus. And I ran into this guy, Alex, that we have been praying for him here in the church for a long time. This guy is, is, a, is a Jew. But the cool thing about him is he actually knows the Old Testament. So he's really, really good. And he's a PhD student. He's really sharp. I think he's studying some sort of, uh, he mentioned the field to me. It's too complicated even to know what he's studying. Something about thermodynamics and biochemistry and all this stuff. He's doing his PhD. Very, very, very smart guy. And we talk a lot. And one time I was talking to him, I was like, you know, the whole Bible, the New Testament message is simply this. Jesus is the son of God. He's equal to God in his nature. But he came down to become human like you and me so he can go to the cross and die to be our substitute so that he can pay, the, he can satisfy the judgment and the wrath of God over our sins. And that's pretty much the Bible. And he was like, Good, but is there any Old Testament scripture that says that? I know this is the Christian theology. This is what the Christians believe. But is there any Old Testament Bible? Is there anything in the Old Testament that says anything like that? And I quoted to him that very verse right here. This verse summarizes our Christian belief on who Jesus is and what he has done for us on the cross. Amen? This verse tells us that Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. He came down to earth. He died on the cross to be our substitute to pay, to pay the wrath and the judgment of God over our sins so you and I can have eternal life. And we'll find that out when we break down that verse. Amen? Amen. The Christian faith is rooted and all founded in the Old Testament. And if we cannot show our Jewish friends that, then we have no business telling them that we're Christian. Amen? If we cannot see it in God's word in the Old Testament, then maybe Christianity and the New Testament might not be that accurate. Amen? But we'll see that everything we believe is actually rooted and founded throughout the Old Testament. Now, this verse, it talks about Jesus. We know that for sure. How do we know? Because Jesus told us, this verse talks about me. Amen? That's a good hint right there. 
And in Matthew 26, 31, right before Jesus went to the cross, actually, that was right before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was captured to be led to the cross so he can be crucified. Jesus spoke to his disciples and he told them in Matthew 26, 31, then Jesus said to them, all of you well made to stumble because of me this night, the night that I am captured, the night that I'm going to be led to the cross. For it is written. So Jesus is backing up the idea that his disciple would abandon him and run away from him because he said there is a prophecy in the Old Testament that says that. Where is it? Here it is. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Where is Jesus getting that from? It's from Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, again is the shepherd, the man who is my companion, says the Lord of all, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus took that verse and applied it to himself in the context of him going to the cross to die to be our substitute. Amen? So we know for sure this verse talks about Jesus. We know for sure this is a shadow of Golgotha, a shadow of the cross, because Jesus told us so, and that's good enough for me. Amen? Now, in that verse, I want to highlight three main points. I want to talk to you guys about the divinity of the shepherd, the deity of the shepherd. I want to talk to you about the sacrifice of the shepherd, and I want to talk to you about the salvation of that shepherd. Amen? Let's say these three points together so I make sure you follow me. Number one, we talk about the divinity of the shepherd. Number two, the sacrifice of the shepherd. And number three, the salvation of the shepherd. Let's talk about the divinity of the shepherd. This is one of the amazing verses in the Old Testament. This is not New Testament, you guys. This is Old Testament, amen, that gives us an insight of the nature and the identity of Christ. Who would he be? How would he look like? Amen? And the Bible tells us here, Awake, O sword, again is my shepherd, that's Jesus. And here is how God described that shepherd. He described him as a, number one, he is the man, but he's also my companion. Now, the word companion here that Zechariah used was actually mentioned only 12 times in the whole Old Testament. One time right here, Zechariah 13, 7, and was mentioned 11 times before that in the book of Leviticus. And that's it. That's the only time where we can see that Hebrew word. And every time it is used in the Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus, it talks in the context of person is sinning or offending or breaking the law in relation of his fellow citizen, his fellow human being, his fellow neighbor. That's how sometimes it was translated. So it's like, you know, for example, let's read this one. In Leviticus 6.2, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceived Deceives his companion, his neighbor, his fellow citizen, his fellow human being. That's what pretty much the verse refers here. His companion. In regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him or through robbery. Or if he has extorted from, um, extorted from his companion. If he stole from his neighbor. So that word always used in the context that can be translated as neighbor. Fellow, fellow, co-equal citizen, something among these lines. As a matter of fact, 
I love this guy, H.P. Liden, wrote this book called The Divinity of Our Lord. And this is how he described this word. It's almost poetic. It is so beautiful how he described it. It's the last three lines in your notes here in that paragraph. It says, the name, that word, designate not one joined by friendship or covenant, but one united indissolubly by common bonds of nature, which can be violated but cannot be annihilated. When this title is applied to he. Uh, to he, to his relation to an uh, to he relation of an individual with God to the relation of an individual with God, it is clear that this individual is united by God, united with God by the unity of uh, being. This word can mean my co-equal. This word can mean the one who stands on the bar with me, my fellow, my citizen, the one who's just me, just like me. Amen. This is how God described the shepherd. That this shepherd, even though he's not the Lord of hosts from that verse, yet he stands on the bar with the Lord of hosts. Amen? He's equal to the Lord of hosts in his being, in his nature, in his essence. Amen? Yet, this is crazy. That shepherd, who is God's co-equal, how does God describe him first? He is a man. Which one is it? Is he man or is he God's equal? Well, he's actually both in the same time. He's the man who is also God's equal. Amen? This is Old Testament, you guys. This is not New Testament. Amen? This is the shepherd who is fully God, fully man, in the exact same time. And isn't that exactly what we describe and say about Jesus in the New Testament? That he is fully God and fully man in the same time? Amen? Let's uh, dig deeper in some theology here. <clears throat> Jesus is called in the Bible the Son of God, right? This is all the time. He, he called himself the Son of God. His disciples called, himself, called him the Son of God. What does the term Son of God mean? Does it mean that Micah is my son? And I think as, as human, because we understand the, the concept of sonship, the way I relate to my son Micah, uh, I begot Micah. Micah was born in my household. I started way before Micah. Micah came into existence when I was 35 years old or whatever. So because we understand the, the sonship and fathership in that sense, even every time we read about Jesus being the son of God, we tend to apply the same principles to the relationship between the father and Jesus. But that's not what the Bible say. Amen? So what do we mean when we call Jesus the Son of God? What does the Bible mean when, we, when the Bible calls Jesus the Son of God? Just in case you talk to a Jehovah Witness or somebody who doesn't believe the same way you do. How do you explain it? Anybody can give me a hint. All right, I'll help you out. So Jesus referred to himself so many times during his ministry on earth as the Son of Man, right? That was actually... The, the number one title Jesus used to refer to himself, the Son of Man. Now, question. When Jesus was referring to himself as the Son of Man, what is Jesus trying to tell us that he is the Son of Man? He's just trying to tell us that he is a? Human. Human. He's a man, right? He's just using the term Son of Man to say, hey, I am just a man. I am fully human, 100% man. 
It's just the way he described, the way he's 100% man, fully human like you and me, he uses the terminology son of man to describe that he is fully human. You guys follow me? And if we're going to be honest to the Bible, we should understand the term son of God on the exact same basis. When Jesus said, I am the son of God, or his disciples say that he is the son of God, we're not saying that Jesus came to existence later, in, later at a later point in history. No, Jesus is the son of God because, because he is fully God. He's 100% God. Just like we understand him saying, I am the son of man, that he's 100% man, so should we understand him saying, I am the son of God, that he is 100% percent God. Amen? He has the nature of God. He has the essence of God. He is everything God is. He does everything God does. He, he, he has every single attribute the Father has. He has the unique characteristics of the Father. He is everything that God is. That is what the Bible tells us about Jesus. He is the Son of God. He's the one who's just God's co-equal when it comes to the essence, when it comes to the nature. You guys follow me so far? And we don't see that just in the New Testament. This is not a doctrine that Paul invented. We see that even in the book of Zechariah, right? That this shepherd will be on the bar with God when it comes to who God is, when it comes to the very nature of God. Amen? You guys uh, follow me so far? Clear like mud? Okay, good. So we see the divinity of that shepherd, that the shepherd will be fully God in his nature, yet that very shepherd will also be fully man in his nature. But we also see the sacrifice of the shepherd. Let's look back at that verse. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And then if you skip with me and read, it says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, what is the sword that God is commanded or asking that this sword will wake up? Well, first time we hear about the word sword in the Bible ever. Anybody can help me out without looking into the notes. <laughs> the first time we read about it was in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve fell in sin and God kicked them out of the garden. The Bible says that God has put a sword that is turning everywhere to guard the way back to the garden so Adam and Eve cannot go back and eat from the tree of life that was in the garden. Amen? So that sword talks about the judgment and the wrath of God over sin. And in essence, God says, this sword means if you ever come back, if you ever approach me, there is one thing waiting for you, and that is death, right? You're not going to make it. This sword is going to take your life out if you try to come back. So the sword is always in the Bible or in our context is, is a symbol of the wrath and the judgment of God. And this is so interesting. You guys remember when we studied Psalm 22? When we talked about how the psalm is so also a shadow of Golgotha. The whole psalm talks about Jesus dying on our behalf on the cross. If you remember the Psalm 22 start by saying, my God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends by the, by the verse, it is finished. And we said that Jesus probably was quoting the whole psalm while he was hanging on the cross. Because all this psalm talks about the agony and the pain that Jesus has endured on the cross as our substitute and the victory that followed that. In the midst of that psalm, in Psalm 20, look at what Jesus said. He says, deliver, again, this is on the cross, deliver my soul from what? From, not as sword, from that sword. Amen? It is the exact same sword that God talked about in Genesis chapter 3 that re 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 resembles the, and represented the wrath and the judgment of God. That very sword that actually was meant for Adam and Eve. That very sword went through Jesus on the cross. And that very sword right there in Zechariah 13. Zechariah tells us, or God is speaking in Zechariah and said, Awake, O sword, against, the, against my shepherd. Strike the shepherd so I can turn my hand against the little ones. Amen? What happened to that shepherd? He was smitten, he was stricken by that sword on the cross. Amen? Don't we see that many times in the Old Testament, we already mentioned that a couple of times, in Exodus 17, 6, we read about the rock that God has commanded Moses to, to, to strike so it can get water out of that rock to, to, to satisfy the thirst of the children of Israel. We talked about this way long time ago. That is also a shadow of the cross. And we said, look at this. Here's how God commanded Moses. Exodus 17, 6. Behold, I stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall do what? Strike the rock. And the water will come out of it, and the people will drink. Yeah. Isaiah 53, 8. We talked about this for 15 weeks, stayed in Isaiah 53. What did, what did Isaiah say about Jesus? And who will tell his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. stricken. The rock that was stricken by Moses, the rock that the, the substitute servant that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 53 that was smitten on our behalf, the exact same shepherd that Zechariah talks about in Zechariah 13, he is the exact same person, Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that principle over and that teaching over and over again that Jesus was our substitute on the cross. He took the judgment of God on our behalf so that we may have life. Amen? This is Old Testament. This is not New Testament. You guys follow me? I'm going to repeat, keep repeating this because this is amazing that we find the gospel that clear in the Old Testament, not just a New Testament theology. Amen? Let me use this analogy to explain to you what Jesus did for us on the cross. I, take a, I got a speeding ticket, okay? And I go, and I know, why not, many of them. Oh, he's open to it. He's, he's, uh, we're still talking. It's great. So um, let's say I got a speeding ticket. And when the officer got me, he gave me a speeding ticket and a court date six months down the road. Okay? Six months down the road, I go to court. I stand before the judge. Question for you guys. Will the judge care that I'm a pastor? No. He shouldn't, right? Number two, will the judge care that I'm a good father? No. Nope. Will the judge care that I'm sorry if I stand before him and say, Your Honor, I really, really, really am sorry. What would the judge say? I'm sorry too, right? There's nothing I can do for you, right? When you stand before the judge 
and you are guilty of breaking the law, there is non-starter for you and the judge unless the law is satisfied first. Amen? Right? When the fine is paid, then the judge can be nice to you. And unless the fine is paid, it doesn't matter how sorry you are. It doesn't matter how good have you been. Nothing matters before the judge because you have broken the law. Amen? Well, let me make it even more complicated. I'm going to pick on Barb. Let's say Barb is the judge. And she supposedly likes me. And she really want to help me out here. Should, should, she, should she let me off the hook? No, she shouldn't. Even though she might want to. Because she knows, you know, he's a good guy, whatever. She might want to, deep down in her heart, want to let me off the hook. But the fact of the matter is she cannot let me off the hook. Why? Because I have broken the law, right? Yeah. Even though she might want to, but the very fact that she is a judge prohibit her from letting me off the hook. You guys follow me? Yeah. That's precisely what is going to happen when we all stand before God on the day of judgment. God is going to be the judge. And he's not going to judge us by comparing us to each other and get the, fi the, fi the top 50% into heaven and the lower 50% into hell. It won't work this way. Amen? God will judge us by comparing each one of us to his own law. The problem is we're all guilty before God because we all have broken the law of God in one way or shape or form. Amen? Yeah. Remember Isaiah 53 says that we all have sinned each one of us have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Amen? We all have sinned. If you might not have committed adultery, you probably lied. If you might have not murdered, you probably robbed a bank. It doesn't matter what you have done. You are guilty before God in one way or shape or form. And when you stand before him, even though God loves you and he doesn't want you to die, he doesn't want you to perish, the very fact that you are guilty before him, he can't. Because he's a just judge. Even though he loves you, he can't let you off the hook. Because he is a righteous and a just judge. He must punish your sins. Amen? And that's why Jesus is the only way to heaven. Because Jesus is that shepherd who came down from heaven, who was fully God. And then he became down to be fully man. And he, then he went to the cross. And on the cross, he was our substitute. Amen? He paid the price of your sins and my sins. And because of his substitution on the cross, the righteous judgment of God has been satisfied. Amen? And because God is satisfied with the penalty of our sins, now God can accept us into his family and even accept us into heaven and give us eternal life. Amen? Let me, let me go back to the analogy about me standing before the judge. The judge say, it's $200, fine, and you have to pay it. And I say, your honor, I really am sorry. And if you let me off this time, I promise you I will never do it again. The judge will say, I'm sorry, you have to pay the fine or go to jail. Well, Your Honor, I'm a pastor. I'm a good father. My wife can come and lie for me, <laughs> you know. And she's like, no, no. Uh, <laughs> you have to pay the fine or you go to jail. It doesn't matter how good of a person or how sorry you are. Now, Barb will step in because I can't do it. I don't have the $200. But Barb is rich. She'll come in and she'll pay, <laughs> she'll pay the $200 to the court. Amen? Now, because she paid the price to the court, 
the court requirement is satisfied. You guys follow me? Yeah. That, that the requirement of the law against Kami has been satisfied, not because I paid for it, but because somebody else paid for it. Amen? And because the law is satisfied, I now can go free. You guys follow me? Yeah. And if it wasn't for Bob, Barb stepping in and paying my fine, there would have been absolutely no way that I can get off the hook. I must go to jail. You guys follow me? That's why it doesn't matter if you're a sincere Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist. It doesn't matter if you're a sincere person. It doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa. It doesn't matter how good or sincere of a person you are. The only way to heaven is through the blood of Jesus, is through his cross, because he's the only one who took care of the judgment and the wrath of God that we deserve when he died as our substitute on the cross. Amen? And when he took care of that problem, now God can forgive us. Now God can give us eternal life. Now God can accept us into his family. But before that, there would have been absolutely no way. You guys follow me? The shepherd was fully God who became fully man. And he was the substitute for that sheep on the cross. And that's precisely what Jesus has done for us. But number three. We see not just the divinity of the shepherd, not just the sacrifice of the shepherd, but we also see the salvation of that shepherd. And that is the very last phrase of that verse. And I will turn my hand against the little one. Now, in Hebrew, this is a little bit of a complicated phrase to know what exactly God is trying to tell us here. That phrase, turn my hand against is actually can, can, can mean good or can mean evil, can mean a blessing or can mean a curse. It depends on the context in which these words were used. For example, it used as a blessing that I will turn my hand against you for good in Isaiah 125. God said, I will turn my hand against you, the exact same phrase, and truly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. God saying, I will bless you by turning my hand against you and I will forgive you. But it can also mean turn your hand against you for judgment. For example, Amos 1.8, I will cut off the inhabitant of Ashdod and the one who holds the specter from Ashkelon, I will, again, same phrase, I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Palestinians shall perish, says the Lord of hosts. So in Amos, when God says, I will turn my hand against you, it's for judgment. Amen? So that phrase can mean either way. can mean a blessing or it can mean a curse. It all comes down to that context of which this phrase was mentioned. I believe that the context here in Zechariah 13 is for, a, is for the good of the people of Israel. It's for their blessing. We see that in verse 9. God says, I will say this is, this is the end goal. I, uh, it will, I will say it is my people and they shall say the Lord is my God. So we see here that when God turned his hand against the little ones, that will result in a blessing to the little ones. Amen? Who is the little ones? It's you and me. Where do we get that from? Luke 12, 32, Jesus said, Fear not, little flock. So that little ones that Zechariah is talking about is just you and me, right? So in a way, here is what Zechariah is telling us. You guys follow me? Here is the summary of the verse. There is a shepherd who is equal with God in his nature. Yet that shepherd became fully human. And then that shepherd 
took our judgment upon himself. He took the wrath of God that you and I rightly deserve. And because that wrath fell on that shepherd, now God is willing to take that wrath away from you and me. Amen? It's like the sword was coming down. The sword was about to strike us. But then the shepherd came and he became the, the middleman, the cover, the substitute, who took that sword upon himself. And because the wrath of God fell on the shepherd, now God, who's still holy, who's still just can now turn his hand of judgment away from you and me so you and I can have eternal life. Amen? Amen. The eternal life provided for you and me only, listen, only because the shepherd took the wrath and the judgment upon himself. You guys follow me? Let me say it again. Eternal life is only available to you and me not because you're a good person, not because you're a sincere person, not because you mean well. The only reason why a holy and a righteous God will give eternal life to sinners like you and me is because the shepherd took our punishment on the cross. Amen? If it's not for the cross, we all would have been doomed. Amen? Aren't you thankful for the cross of Christ this morning? Amen? By which we can be saved. It wasn't cheap. Jesus paid for it. But it's free because Jesus paid for it. Amen? Let's close our eyes and pray. The most important time 